I'm Carol Cohn, and welcome to Purpose 360, the podcast that unlocks the power of purpose to ignite business and social impact. Today's show is the second in a series with One Young World Ambassadors, amazing young women who, from a very early age, started their own not-for-profits to address their personal commitments to climate challenges. Joining me is Kakashin Basu, an iconic global influencer, educator, environmentalist, champion of women and children's rights. She will talk about her Green Hope Foundation that is an accredited youth-led not-for-profit registered in Canada with operations in 28 countries. She will also talk about many of the events she attended as a speaker and a moderator at COP28, um, certainly more than 24 on the ground. Following Kakasha is Mavis Manu, and she is a gender expert and program director at the Oak Foundation in Ghana. The Oak Foundation is a nonprofit organization working to improve the economic well being of the youth, women, and the natural environment in Ghana and across West Africa. Both of these young women are extraordinary. They have confident, diverse voices steeped in the background in their focus areas, and they had very specific points of view of the promises of COP as well as the challenges. So let's get started. So Mavis, if you could just share your background in terms of your work and social impact, because it is extraordinary. Thanks, Carol. Um, And first and foremost, also thanks very much for the opportunity to be here and to have this conversation. I think it's very important. So I'm very grateful for for the platform. Um, So I I work as a gender expert at Climate Analytics, and I also am a director and a co-founder of a not-for-profit organization based in Ghana. Um, so starting off with a non-for-profit, um, Oak Foundation. Um, so our story or history is quite interesting because we started as, um, creating as an, uh, uh NGO focused on e- education, creating like clubs, girls clubs in, in schools and rural communities in Ghana to encourage the young girls to pursue higher education. And along the line, we transitioned into entrepreneurship where we now do a lot of agribusiness and vocational skills and training. And we support young people to start their own agribusiness enterprises and also vocational enterprises. And we've had, we've been privileged to have the support from from GIZS, German Development um, Corporation, um, and also SNV, which is the Netherlands Development um, Agency to support us for some of the projects that we've worked on. And then on the other hand, I also work as the Executive Officer and Agenda Expert at Climate Analytics, which is a science and policy research institute headquartered here in Berlin. Um, and what we do, or my role, um, is to bring gender into the climate change work that we do. Very, very impressive um, in terms of the work that you're doing. How did you get so passionate about social impact? 
Well, I grew up with a single mother, so I would say that sort of had an influence in me and my desire to also support other young girls and women. Um, so um, that is the start. And for me, growing up, education was always um, sort of the gateway to success. And that is what my mom taught me. And then I saw, um, look back into my community and I saw a lot of the, uh, the uh, young girls that I grew up with or the friends and even the younger ones. They were not taking education seriously, and I knew how education had helped me. So I wanted to go back to the communities to show them and to tell them this is this is my story. This is what education has done for me, and so this is what you can also do to improve your situation. And this is why uh, Oak Foundation we started with a girls' club. So basically, the idea was just go back into our communities and serve as mentors and role models to younger girls, so that they can also aspire to achieve higher education. And along that journey, we realized also that one of the biggest social issues that exist in Ghana was unemployment. So a lot of people will go to school all right, but at the end of the day, there are no jobs for uh, for people. Um, and there are also people who are also just not um interested in going through the educational route. So there should be some sort of pathway, other pathways for them to achieve economic independence. That's beautiful. I I, I a lot of people that I interview, it's their mom. It's parents, but it's heavy on the moms who who left their character and their values in the in their child, and then their child just blossoms. So I love that story. Thank you. So welcome to the show, Kehekasha. For our listeners, at the age of twelve, Kehekasha founded the Green Hope Foundation. So please share with us what was the impetus for you at the age of twelve to create this foundation, and talk a little bit about the work that you're doing today, and then we'll start transferring into COP twenty eight. Sure. So I'll actually go back to five years before at the founding Green Hope Foundation. So it's seen the image of a dead bird with its belly full of plastic at the age of seven, was deeply disturbed by dad and wanted to do something to stop that from happening again because I realized that there was something seriously wrong with people for allowing something like an innocent creature to suffer to so much pain and that I had to do something to stop that from happening. And it was around that time that I'd attended a lecture by environmentalist Robert Swan and his words, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it really resonated with me. And that is what kind of pushed me to plant my first tree on my eighth birthday, which is also World Environment Day, 5th June. So at that point, I was like, this is my life's mission to become an eco-warrior. Uh, but it, it was like a lot of hard work, like, you know, working to ensure that it implement these ground level actions, engaging my peers, my neighborhood, uh, restaurants, shops, schools. Uh, and that work got recognized and I was invited to speak at my first UN conference at the age of 11. And then the following year in 2012, when I was 12, I was uh, invited to speak at the Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit. And out of the 50,000 delegates there, there were only five people under the age of 18, me being 12 in one of them. And that was when I realized that there was a severe lack of inclusivity of children, young people, women, underserved communities within the sustainable development process. And I wanted to do something to change that, to address that lack of inclusivity. And that is what inspired me to 
found Green Hope Foundation on my return. And there's literally been no looking back since then. We currently work in 28 countries with over half a million people on all aspects of sustainability Harnessing clean energy technology for social good. So that includes building schools, building solar water farms to address climate change induced water insecurity, uh, working on sustainable agriculture, planting over a million trees globally, over 76,000 mangroves, and uh, making sure that people around the world, from young people to seniors, know that they have the change being potential to create a better world for all. I'm just exhausted by that list. That's fantastic. And you're just getting going. So so that's really, really commendable. Um, you won you've won some significant awards, the International Children's Peace Prize. When you won that, how did you feel? And did you utilize it to leverage it in some way? Yeah, I mean, it was such a huge honor. Uh, that was so actually the first time that the International Children's Peace Prize had been awarded to uh, someone working on the intersection of children's rights and the environment. And yes, it was a way to kind of amplify my uh, call to action for children around the world at that time, but really for everyone to uh, work towards a more peaceful and sustainable world and understand the intersections uh, of like, so social justice, economic stability with uh, environmental conservation. So now let's turn to Dubai. Um, you just came back re- fairly recently from COP28. So I would just love, you know, your impressions. Like, you know, what did you do there? Um, did you get any great next action outcomes? You know, what were surprises? This was so huge than any club that I have ever been to. So there was so much going on. There was a lot, um, a lot happening. Um, and it was, um, overwhelming to a extent, but also it's also an indication of the kind of awareness that, um, um, we are cops are bringing to climate change conversation and the kind of interest that people have now to engage on the topic. Being there as a one young world ambassador, I got the opportunity to speak on um panels. So for example, um there was this panel on why we can fight climate change without gender equality, um, where I got the opportunity to speak uh in uh um as one of the panelists on the role. So that was a very, very interesting opportunity. Um, in terms of the content of the COP or the outcome, so I think for me as a young person or as a one young ambassador and also as somebody with a developing country background, um, the fact that the loss and damage fund was adopted, the personalization of the loss and damage fund was adopted right at the start of COP, I think was a major achievement because it's been something that developing countries have been um, negotiating for for a very long time. In addition to that, in terms of the outcome, I think and as a young person, um, the fact that we were not able to come up with a decision that actually um, face out fossil fuel and just says that we transition away, I think th- that was one of my lows at COP. 
um, because uh, we do know what the problem is um, regarding climate change and we know that it's fossil fuels and it doesn't do us any good just like going around a problem when we know this is what we need to do and this is COP28 this is 28 years after COP if we are still dancing around the problem um, then it's a huge um, cause for concern and I think that for a lot of young people like me that were there we were quite um, not so satisfied with that outcome um, also considering that this is our future that is at stake and we want our leaders to be able to be bold and take up uh, and take and make strong decisions that safeguard our future um, and this this was not it so that was um, one of the law and I do acknowledge the fact that it is the first time fossil fuel has been ever mentioned in a COP decision but it's still not the kind of ambition that we we need at this time and the at the scale of climate impacts that we are seeing. Yeah, it was it was really really busy and it addressed like uh, all literally all of like the intersections that like you know with, with climate change that were being discussed from uh, business and finance to uh, peace to land restoration to water, food, gender. Uh, the list really goes on health, physical and mental health, education. So it was really like ensuring that I felt nice to be able to kind of work, go around, share the work that we were doing on all of these different like uh, aspects. And uh, yeah, it's it, it was just really, uh, really cool to be able to do that. Um, personally, I attend my first ever COP was 11 years ago in COP 28, uh, sorry, COP 18 uh, in Doha. And I was a 12 year old then and I'd been invited to speak there. But UNFCCC, UN Climate Change had that archaic rule that no under 18s would be allowed. Uh, and it was only on one day, Future Generations Day. So that was the only day I was allowed in. And to think about like what was going on there at that time and compared to what's happening now 11 years later with so much uh, like the inclusivity like that that has changed like drastically and even the commitments that are being made and uh, like negotiators governments private sector civil society everyone understands the urgency of the situation that wasn't there 11 years ago so you know it's changed a lot so externally like people might say that okay yeah no it, it's not strong enough it's not like not enough is happening but as someone who's literally seen this process over the last more than a decade from like the inside and as a civil society member I'm like yeah there's been a lot of progress and there's definitely reason for hope and i i would personally consider it a success so yeah you know that from that side like from that perspective it's it was really great and uh with my organization we i not only spoke at events and you know on various issues we also organized several events so we i had we had our like officials you know triple c side event we also organized several other events uh on uh the intersection of like you know feminist climate justice with uh like land with education uh, and water and mangrove restoration and what was also really great is that to get cop and the messages of cop to the students the local students we organized two climate symposiums one for university students and one for high school and middle school students and got like uh people who've been within the un process 
for a really long time from like former assistant secretary generals to uh, heads of like UN, current heads of UN bodies, uh, researchers, uh, academics, former negotiators to ensure that young people with like from Dubai had that opportunity to learn firsthand from their experiences. And probably the coolest uh, experience was um, on the rest day. Uh, we took uh, several COP28 delegates for a mangrove planting and restoration project, which was just wonderful because, you know, you know, there was being there were commitments that were being made. Uh, I was on I was speaking at a panel where uh, my fellow panelist uh, was talking about this, like billions of dollars being committed to mangrove restoration. Uh, and I was like, OK, like, that's really great. But there's a lot that needs to be done now and to be actually able to turn those commitments that are being talked about into grand level actions. Uh, that was, that was really great. So yeah, there, there's, it, it was, it was very eventful. You were very busy. So, so <laughs> yes. you were very, you know, when you were in panels and even meals with people, you know, ser- either planned or serendipity, did you feel the dissonance between, and you're in an oil rich country and there was a lot of a controversy about having this in Dubai. Did you feel it? And what was it like? What were you hearing? If we listen even to the um, the statements that were delivered um, in the plenary um, by countries, it was quite clear that everybody was calling for the decision to be based on the science and the science that say that in order for us to be aligned on a 1.5 degree pathway to meet the Paris Agreement, we need to face our fossil fuels. And that this is what the science saying. This is what a lot of people were asking for. Um, so I had that sense and I am quite hopeful. We probably did not get it this time, but I think the pressure on fossil fuel facing out and making that decision in COP, it's, it's going up. And hopefully in the next COP in Baku, that is something that we'll be able to achieve. I think that having the discussion about a just transition to clean energy like that, if we are just working with like the clean and the renewable energy, like pro renewable energy and people within that sector and completely alienating the fossil fuel industry and the oil industry, like you're not going to have any kind of progress because you're just literally talking amongst yourselves and not having meaningful dialogue. So I think that if we're to have this just transition, the keyword being just, you need to ensure that everyone has like a seat at the table. And for me, you know, I, I was born in, although I'm Canadian, I was born and raised in Dubai and growing up in a country where, uh, you know, it's that has seen a lot of development, uh, throughout the years and has worked a lot towards ensuring that they're able to not like kind of move away from oil and kind of move more towards renewables with like the building of mass uh, solar plants, uh, solar power plants and uh, investing in uh, wind energy, for example, like there's a lot that is being done. And I feel that the Western mindset, like the Western media often only focuses uh, on othering uh, certain regions and communities and being like, oh, they only focus on oil and nothing else and completely forgetting about the fact that yeah, one of the, the UAE has one of the largest solar power plants in the world, uh, the Shams Solar Power Plant, and has, that's been there for many years now. And they've had significant investments in renewable energy as well. So I think that's really important to take into account. And I, I feel that, you know, growing up in that region, I was able to get 
exposed to that narrative uh, and instead of just being exposed to like the Western narrative of how it's put forward, because obviously Western nations aren't like, uh, you know, completely fossil fuel free either, but very few people kind of talk about that. So that is, that's kind of the mindset I went in uh, with that. And the key word being just, again, you know, you can't shut down an industry overnight. You need to ensure that there is a very just transition that takes place. And that's not just within that region. It's all across the world. So I feel that uh, having it in a country that has historically been dependent on oil, but is committed to moving away, I think that that's just ensuring that we are taking steps towards a just transition. So what do you feel in terms of the 23 events, the symposiums and such, what do you feel was your greatest impact at COP28? I think getting the message, uh, like the importance of ground level actions and not just sticking like to the commitment level, I know that was echoed throughout. And I really felt this time that, you know, being a part of that and uh, calling for that through like sharing concrete solutions that are already being implemented. I think that was really, really great. And of course, being able to kind of turn some of the commitments that are being talked about into ground level actions, like not just in the UAE, but like my team members were working all around the world to, you know, our the actions did not stop, even though several of our members were at COP. So yeah, I think that the, the solutions, like ground level actions, like that part, I, I felt that being able to emphasize that after being at so many and seeking at so many different coughs. Yeah, that, that was really, really great. And I think that is kind of the impact that I was able to make and contribute to. Very well stated. What were your key learnings? If you could say to um, the next generation, your generation, about cohesive activism and consistent voice, what would you recommend to your colleagues who I hope will be listening to this? We should never stop saying, uh, demanding for things to change. Um, and I think, and this is what I'm, one of the things that I'm also quite proud of for young people and also the, uh, the youth activists that were on the ground. Um, being present in those spaces, being in the faces of the decision makers and telling them to do the same thing that you've been telling them to do over and over again, it is still important. They still need, need to hear. Um, and it puts the pressure on them to do the right thing. Um, so I would say for young activists, it, it's, it can feel like there's no hope. It can be quite discouraging, especially if you've been saying the same thing over and over again and you feel like nothing is happening. But if if we want to create change and if we want things to change, we need to keep hammering and we need to keep on saying it and we need to keep requesting our leaders to do what is right. Um, and there were lots of young um, youth activists, for example, who were lined up holding hands in front of the, uh, some of the rooms telling the young uh, the leaders to do what is right. So I would say that would, that is the first thing and I think the most important thing. Um, but also, um, and I know in order for them to be there, they need to be able to be given the opportunity, um, which is all, which is also includes finance. Um, and I think that is one of the challenges that young people or young activists face, having access to these spaces because of lack of finance. So this is something that we really need to work on uh, to make sure that they are able able to be present and be able to influence these decisions, which um, impacts their future. Do you feel that the voices and the messages of youth and your colleagues were taken seriously at COP? 
Yeah, I, I think this time, yes, because you it's so much more meaningful. You're not just having young people who are like relegated outside demonstrating. You are have young people who are sharing solutions. You have young professionals. You have young negotiators. And UAE being uh, the first country in the world to have like uh, a minister that's, uh, you know, focused not just like on happiness, but also uh, in this entire ministry that has, you know, the youngest minister in the world uh, to in, in, like institute someone that young into office as the youth minister. Like that's like it really showed how important young people were so you had young negotiators you had uh the youth cl- climate champions team and getting in all of the young people uh like sponsoring 100 young more than 100 young people from around the world so that like all of those steps that were taken i think that compared to previous cops it's just like so so uh, different it's a really positive uh step forward because yeah you, you wouldn't even you wouldn't have seen that in the past uh Pops at all. So I think that while there's a lot, there's a lot more that needs to be done for sure. But uh, it's like there's been progress. And I think that this pop really did reflect that where you saw young people in like not just as a homogenous entity or like outside blaming others, but young people who were like taking meaningful actions within all sectors of society. So inclusion, wise inclusion of youth activists was taking place. But you also said more needs to be done. So if you were talking to the organizers of COP29, what would you suggest to them about even greater inclusivity of youth activists? Yeah, I, I think, again, just like ensuring, like taking concerted steps towards not tokenizing young people and recognizing kind of the heterogeneity of youth uh, involved in climate action. I think that is very, very important. Uh, that was done a lot at this COP, so I hope that we're kind of able to take that forward because it shouldn't be that just because one government and the presidency is committed to youth inclusion that uh, it's only them and not like the next COPs. It should be like a really a, a long-term change. So I think that is really important and kind of actively taking steps to move away from the Western uh, narrative that says that, you know, young people are only strikers and protesters. Like that's really not all young people. It's uh, focusing on the actions that young people are taking and not kind of, uh, you know, just relegating us to the youth panels or youth events, making sure that when you're looking at someone's work, like someone like they're a speaker, like presenting, it's not because of their age, it's because of their work. And the age part is like, okay, yeah, okay, they're young and they're working. Like that's, that's the kind of mindset. And did you, I'm, I'm curious, because it sounds like you met a lot of young people and that you got an opportunity to, and I, to, to talk, did you learn anything else from um, just meeting new people who again, were young um, activists? Yeah, so I did. I mean, I got the opportunity to learn about some of the projects um, that young people are involved in, are working within a climate change and then negotiation space. Um, and one example um, was like a um, group of young girls or young activists that have created this um, organization called the Youth Negotiators Academy. And basically what they are doing is to is training young negotiators. So they train them, they attach them to 
Um, there are certain groups, depending on which country they are coming from, so that they can sit in the rooms, listen to the conversation, and also learn. Um, so this is like was very very inspiring uh, to see that. And there were several activists, like like I mentioned, young people who are also um, invited to high level events um, where they get the opportunity to also talk um, about climate change from the youth perspective. So um, and the number. But I mean, for the past four years that I have been to COPS, I always see like new youth activists and it's quite encouraging to see how young people are actually taking charge of this whole process and being in the space and being involved um, of the of the conversation and the decisions that are happening. So that does meeting these new young people, it's helping with your optimism versus your pessimism. Right. What did you think of the outcome? of cop i think uh again like compare like, compare it to like previous cops it's definitely you know a, a positive uh step forward uh yeah like the language for sure is uh could have been stronger but looking back at what you know from when going from phase down to like moving away from fossil uh fuels it's like it's it's positive in that uh, sense for sure. Uh, and I think again, you know, this is something that the next cops can uh, really build on, uh, but and someone kind of really needed to uh, like put it in the document that yeah, transitioning away is is stronger than just phasing down. So yeah, I think the next cops can definitely uh, build on that. So I thought it was a positive outcome uh, for sure. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how the next ops build on that and how what has been already committed is actually implemented. Yes. C- accountability. Yes. So so th- this has been a marvelous conversation. I always love to give the last words to my guest. So what else would you like to share with with anybody listening? I think what I want to say is I think so if we as the people we tell our governments to do what is right by making um, the right choices when it comes to the kind of precedents or the kind of people we vote in power. I think that goes a long way to create the kind of change that we want to look for. So for everybody listening, I want to let you know you have the power to change and you have the ability to influence some of the decisions that are happening with your vote and with your voices in any space that you find yourself. So speak up, uh, talk about this, make the right decision and together let's uh, let's safeguard our future because climate change is real it is happening and it's quite scary and we need to do something about it i would just like to uh, reiterate my call for like turning commitments into action like that was something that i like, like that was literally my whole call to action at cop 28 addressing all of these intersections of climate but within the whole sustainability sphere and what i've been working on for uh more than a decade now, it's really been about making sure that we're able to implement these grand level actions within our own spheres of influence. And yes, that like these actions, it like we're taking for climate justice, for sustainability, it might seem small in the face of like something so big, but it's, we, and we might not even see the results right away, but it, it is gonna, it is working, it is helping and, 
our future generations are going to benefit from that. And there are some actions that, you know, you see the results of right away as well. And I think seeing that, seeing the smiles in the faces of the people I work with and some of the positive impacts that we've seen gradually over the last of uh, the years of implementing them, whether that's mass reforestation of like uh, of land or, you know, finally being able to uh, get girls the education that they so desperately need in very climate vulnerable rural uh, communities. I mean, that's like that is progress. And I think that we should not give up hope because we can definitely find hope in the solutions that are being implemented by turning commitments into action. That's beautiful. Wonderfully stated. And you are just such uh, an impactful activist. Oh, thank you at, so much. At such a young age. Thank you. Oh, it's wonderful. So thank you so much for your for your insights. I know this is going to be a very, very inspiring to youth activists as well as some of us who are older, because the next generation is not just protesting, they're acting. Yes. And it's the action and the positive action and the commitments that are going to really make a difference. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much, Carl. This was such a pleasure and it was so fun (laughs) talking to you. (laughs) This podcast was brought to you by some amazing people, and I'd love to thank them. Anne Hundertmark and Kristen Kenny at Carol Cone on Purpose, Pete Wright and Andy Nelson, our crack production team at True Story FM, and you, our listener. Please rate and rank us because we really want to be as high as possible as one of the top business podcasts available so that we can continue exploring together the importance and the activation of authentic purpose. Thanks so much for listening.